0: Welcome to Waco Watch. This is our inaugural weekly podcast. So we will pick up where we left off and discuss the key takeaways from the first Waco patent trial before Judge Albright, starting from the pretrial motions all the way through the verdict forms. Uh, Mike and Danielle are with me today. How are you guys doing? Great, Joanna, it's good to see you. Good to see you Uh, as well.
1: Doing great, good to see you both. Good to be back home.
0: So Mike and Danielle, we will start with the pre-trial. Um, what were some of the key takeaways from the pre-trial stage? Well, I'll
2: start. What struck me the most is uh, you need to remember what you say during the entire case because it will be held against you. Uh, so. However you present yourself at the beginning, if you are trying to move to transfer and suggesting that you have no contacts in the Western District or in the state of Texas, you will need to stick with that uh, for the rest of your uh, time in your case before the judge.
1: Yeah that 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 was a, was an uncomfortable moment you know when the judge the judge the issue was never really resolved but the judge did you know did uh, did seem taken aback by the you know just the metaphysical contradiction of saying the case doesn't belong in Texas and then the first two witnesses out of the box are from Texas and Arkansas um and not from California my um my, my, I thought it was quite interesting that there was a couple of things that happened pre-trial that sort of worked their way through all of the issues in the trial. One was that in the expert reports, the there were parts of those expert reports where I, I guess the judge ruled that the expert's opinions were based on claim constructions that that were he felt contradicted his constructions or represented. That, something that went well beyond the plain and ordinary meaning. And those positions were, were struck from the reports and they left, without a sort of a chance of fixing them, they left kind of some, some holes in the ability of the experts to testify. And a corollary of that was that it, the summary judgments In many instances, he denied them based on them being an unresolved claim construction issue. So, the-I think the takeaway there was, you know, you have to try to resolve-if you're going to move for summary judgment, you you need to not make it a claim construction issue at summary judgment. um, I don't think he's going to have the bandwidth to, you know, while considering a a summary judgment at the same time, you know, issue a new mark, ruling.
2: You know, it's interesting how we think that all of the claim construction issues are going to be resolved at the Markman hearing. But sometimes as we work our way through the issues post-Markman, we realize that there is still something that's not quite settled uh, that should have or could have uh, been presented to the court during the Markman. And it's hard to know Uh, strategically, or I guess it's part of something that we think about all the time, strategically, what do we do with this unresolved, potentially ambiguous, you know, maybe it's plain, ordinary meaning, maybe it's not. What do we do with that as we approach trial when we're that close to it? And it's, it's helpful to understand how Judge Albright might be inclined to to view those kinds of issues that late in the trial or that late in the in the case.
1: I I think if you look at it from the standpoint, if if you're going to in in a court that's as busy as his or you know courts other courts that have that many patent cases, it's so important that you have the, the you know the confidence just to pick pick an argument or two and write it hard and if you feel like you need a claim construction clarification then go ask for that uh, before the summary judgments and um, you know try to get the court to focus hard on 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 one one strong argument rather than on you know four strong arguments or maybe they're not strong but it, the courts that are this busy um, you'll do yourself a favor by you know, focusing in like a laser when, when it gets to summary judgment. And if you need a clarification on a claim construction, it seems like it wouldn't be an unreasonable ask. But it's, done, it's done at the right time. If done at the right time.
0: Okay, so that are the key takeaways from the pretrial. Um, but wrapped into that are the motions in lemony as well. Something that stood out to me um, what, in reviewing the transcript on the motions in limine is that Judge Albright, he um, essentially excluded certain evidence um, and said that he would take it up during trial regarding the relevance of the evidence. And that at the, the motion in limine stage, he excluded it because he did not want the parties to object during opening statements. He, he he noted that that is something that he despises um, and he does not want someone else's opening statement being messed up because of objections. Were there any other takeaways from the motions in limine or the pretrial stage that you guys could think of? Um, the
1: the. the you know, all of the courts now are, well, not all, but many of them are, I guess without exception, they're not allowing you to call somebody a patent troll or something derogatory. But I think, and that—and that's what was excluded in the motion and limiting phase. But as the trial went on, it became clear that not only was Roku prohibited from, saying that their MP3 partners is a non-practicing entity, but a, a bit further than that went on to say that, um, you know, I don't, the judge didn't want to hear things like, you know, your address is a, a you know, post office box, you don't have a physical off office, you don't have any employees, you don't make any products. Unless, unless it was relevant, and, and so, but it, it, if it sounded gratuitous, it, w- it was going to annoy the judge, and, and he spoke up, uh, even though the other side, even though MP3 Partners hadn't hadn't objected to it. So I think the um, you know, to the extent a defendant wants to try to get that kind of evidence in, I think it's going to have to make a really direct connection of relevance, um, or risk, you know, you know, risk risk irritating the judge.
2: I'm not sure what I think about that. I, if, cause we know, we know that a, a plaintiff, a non-practicing entity is going to be uh, talking about the size, the magnitude and just the behemoth status of the defendant in front of the jury. And these people are doing great things and they're only able to do these great things because of this invention that we, that of ours. And so if it was such a great invention, then how come you couldn't do anything with it, my friend? I mean, it's just like you were saying, Mike, in our other podcasts. Uh, you, you've you had a Roku uh, box for three years, and you didn't know that it practiced your patent, right? I mean, your invention was so important. It was such a big deal, but you couldn't see it sitting there in your den, you know, on your screen porch, wherever you had it, uh, but it was that important. And so I just, I don't, I, I don't think that that is fair, uh, because I think it's important to say that, uh, yes, they have a patent, yes, they're entitled to a monopoly, but that let's be clear that the only thing that they have going for them is the patent. They got nothing else they never had, and they weren't ever going to. Uh, but clearly, uh, that's the defense uh, lawyer and me uh, talking. But I, I don't, I don't appreciate why there's a restriction on recognizing the plaintiff of when it is a true non-practicing entity for exactly what it is.
1: I think that it's probably in the delivery. In other words, if in cross-examining the inventor. The um, the subject was more, you know. So you you're here asking for forty million dollars, you know, and you know you recognize that you know bargaining power is is part of what 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 occurs in the negotiation and who the parties are and um, you know and it, it it's correct that you know, from your perspective, any money would have been more money than you were making, right? And so, I'm not sure exactly how you would deliver it, but to, I think the key in getting that kind of evidence in is going to be making it immediately apparent why it's relevant so that it doesn't feel gratuitous.
2: Right. Well, it's certain, certainly a strategy to, to work on, but if if at the motion and limiting stage, out of the gate, you're just getting a lockdown on this issue, it is definitely going to be or could be an uphill battle going forward. I understand not bringing it up in opening statement, and I, I think that there are a lot of motions in limiting that make sense uh, to be, uh, I guess, institute, applied two opening statements and then thereafter, let's get into the evidence and let's see where the relevance is and make your argument to the court. But here, I mean, the restrictions were, were that you could not approach the bench uh, to ask permission to uh, go into the issues uh, that were limited uh, by the motions and limiting. So it was a it was an interesting uh, structure for the trial and once the COVID restrictions are, are lifted, I'm sure we'll see something that's a little bit more typical, where you approach the bench before you want to go into the into the subject matter. It might make it easier for folks to give it a go. Well,
1: I think what they did was they talked about things that they thought were going to be controversial um, in, in breaks. You know, so we're about to put this witness on, and um, mm-hmm. you know, we we expect that they're going to have a problem with this. Can we talk about it now? And so I think it, it, you know, the there were things that were discussed in front of the jury that probably wouldn't normally be discussed in front of the jury. But that being said, it didn't seem, uh, it seemed to flow just fine. And I think the parties were able to, I think just it it caused them to be more forthright. I think in trying to get ahead of issues um, during breaks when the jury was not in the in the room.
0: Okay, so moving on to trial, um, there were a lot of key takeaways. Let's talk about those, Mike and Danielle. What were some of the key takeaways from trial? My key takeaway
2: from trial is uh, Judge Albright is prepared uh, for you to present your case. And he, he and, his, uh, and the folks that, that work with him in his courtroom are, are ready to go. And he understands the issues uh, he has thought about the issues. Uh, he is he is ready to see you present your case and is and is there to to preside over it uh, in an efficient manner. so i I didn't expect any less. Uh, and i was I was glad to I was glad to see that uh, from from start from start to finish. Uh, and then uh, Mike has not been able to uh, contain. Uh, his description of the judge as enjoying trying the cases uh, or enjoying presiding over the cases. And so that enthusiasm combined with uh, a preparation, uh, I'm looking forward to trying a case in front of Judge Albright, to be honest with you. He, he,
1: yeah, he, I mean, he he's done this. He is an American College of Trial Lawyers. He, and I think part of what the lawyers Liked about trying the case in front of him is that may be different than other judges because he did this. He knows how hard it is, uh, and he knows how how good patent lawyers are at their job. You know, the ones that are going to be trying cases uh, like this. He he knows that that's good lawyering, and uh, and he's respectful of the amount of work that they're putting in, and he he really. Um, he didn't lose his patience with people in a way that maybe other judges have. And maybe some judges, you know, that didn't do this exact type of work, uh, you know, maybe his enthusiasm will wane after he has 50 trials under his belt. But as of now, he's very excited about it, he's prepared, and, and he's, you know, he 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 kept telling them, you know, he wants to be fair, and it was important for him, you know, to say that many many times. Now, whether the other, whether both of the parties agreed with him actually being fair, that that would be for them to say. But it did seem like he was emphasizing his desire to be perceived as fair. Um, if we could get, you know, if we want to get a bit more granular, some of the things I think were. Um, Interesting. I'd like Danielle's reaction to the, the voir dire piece because Danielle's, I think, popped around the country to more different, you know, venues and a lot of lawyers in terms of trying cases. But in, in, uh, in Judge Albright's court, the magistrate's going to actually let you do the voir dire. You're going to talk to the uh, talk to the potential jurors face to face.
2: I think that that's terrific. Uh, I think we all appreciate how uh, challenging Patent litigation can be, and ensuring that you have established the connection with the jury uh, during voir dire is 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 important. And it, even if it's under, you know, whether it's uh, unlimited from a time perspective or a generous uh, from a time perspective, or you just get a little bit of time, just the opportunity to to talk and let the jurors hear. Hear how you hear how you speak, and then you get to look them in the eye when they're answering those questions. I don't think there's any substitute substitute for that as part of the as part of the trial process. Uh, so I think it's a it's a great opportunity, and uh, I hopefully it'll it'll stay that way.
1: So one of the things I was thinking about is is both of the um, parties had their local Waco lawyers. Do the voir dire, and then MP3 Partners did have their local Waco lawyer, um, Mark Mann, who is you know very seasoned trial lawyer. He did do some of the stand up work. He did do some of the cross examinations and presented a witness, I believe, at least one. Uh, but the Roku lawyers, I don't, I don't really recall that they're the lawyer who did their voir dire did um, did very much at trial I could be wrong about that, but leaving that aside you know what what's your reaction to having someone other than the lead you know, ultimately neither lead counsel for roku nor m v three partners did the vordeer they didn't start building their own independent rapport with them they they used the uh, that and I wonder um, know what what your reaction is to that whether that's the right thing to do the wrong thing to do or who knows
2: i think it depends on the case and the jurisdiction where you are first of all uh, anyone who's sitting at your council table if they are designated as your local council i think it's important for them to participate in the in the trial because otherwise it looks like you just had somebody sitting there at the, at your table, and I think we are all pretty sensitive to when we just have somebody there for appearances, and they're not actually doing anything. Uh, so, if you're going to have somebody take up a seat at your trial table, they need to be doing something and something meaningful. Uh, and and I think and it varies uh, from from case to case uh, whether you need to have somebody from from the jurisdiction present as as part of your part of your trial team, so I think it varies. But it's not uncommon, Mike, for uh, for the split up or the allocation among the trial team to be, okay, well, we're gonna start with uh, Vodire, uh our born and raised uh, in-town lawyer is gonna be the one who does the Vodire. Or we're gonna have uh someone else you know our our most senior lawyer do the and then we're gonna have our have our homegrown lawyer hometown lawyer uh present the opening statement uh but I mean it's it's such a short uh trial right I mean it was only six trial days uh and if we're under those time constraints I mean it's important to to make sure that the allocation makes sense uh that the allocation gives opportunity for all of the for the for the parties to establish a rapport with the jurors, uh, and and but it with the time constraints, the technical nature of the of the of the issues in the case, uh, and sort of makes it difficult or it's just a challenge to figure out how you're going to allocate that. So, uh, but I've seen it where uh, local counsel does uh, at least 50%. I've seen it where they just do the word hire I've seen it where they do a third, and then you've got a variety of lawyers doing the other two thirds. Uh, I mean, honestly, when we think about the technical side, usually on on the trial team, I mean, some or usually on the on the whole case team, there are a couple of people who who have just lived and breathed the technical issues, and sometimes when everything gets distilled down and you've got those time limits and you've got your direct examination and your cross-examinations, it becomes very clear that there are only two or three people that can handle the direct examination of the technical expert or the cross-examination of the technical expert. And that can sort of change the dynamics of how many people you have speaking in your trial. But We've got to get those technical issues right because that's what the case is about.
0: But what did you guys? What were your key takeaways and thoughts from the expert testimonies?
1: So, like in many courts, he seems pretty pretty prepared to strike testimony that's not in an expert report. So that's sort of a meat and potatoes thing. But you definitely in presenting your. You know, you're, you're direct, you're obviously going to want to know exactly where it is in the report, and that would be in your outline of your direct examination, but you probably need to have that ready for your redirect as well. Um, he allowed the experts to present testimony on the plain and ordinary meaning of certain un- unresolved claim construction issues. So, in other words, um, if, if a term was given its plain and ordinary meaning, even with a caveat, you know, such as, um, maybe plain and ordinary meaning, uh, the docking port was plain and ordinary meaning, um, but it has to be hardware or hardware and software. And the experts presented their their testimony about what that plain and ordinary meaning is. And that's not something that, um, you know, is is, is necessarily gonna happen in every court. So that was was interesting. And I think that, you know, was something um, that was, you know, a big part of the trial. He, Again, we, we can't emphasize this enough. He wants the, you know, experts especially, but all the witnesses to give yes or no answers to yes or no questions. And certainly on cross, those are the only types of questions you would expect to be asked. And he he, he himself would you know, interject and say, you know, that's a yes or no question. You need to give it a yes or no, or and I don't know. And uh, you know, I think he was just fair that way uh, as far as far as managing the witnesses. Um
0: that was something actually that stood out to me um when you were discussing that with us. I know that many times judges say that um but actually enforcing it and saying that you can tell your side of the story or um you know the plaintiff side of the story on redirect but during the cross examination if it is a clear question answer yes or no and then you can you know add whatever you want to it on redirect. So that was something that Stood out to me and something that I wrote in my notes to always remember, even when prepping um, witnesses on our side um, and it's just letting them know on cross-examination answer the question. But on redirect, if there's something that we need to add to, we can do it on there, especially before Judge Albright in Wake Up. So one way, uh,
2: when we're, when, when we're thinking about how we prepare our expert witnesses for trial, I mean, we really want them to appear the same on direct examination and cross examination and having uh, practice sessions with the video uh, so they can see the difference in how they're answering the questions. And so if, if the questions are yes, no, or I guess ask for yes or no answers, then you know they need to answer that way because uh, I think that if we were to videotape them and they can see how they present, it doesn't present them in the most favorable light if they're saying if they're answering our questions directly, but they're answering the other sides uh, indirectly. And so to have the yes or no responses, I think actually will help the witnesses' uh, credibility in front of the jury in the long run. It also helps us all uh, from pulling out our hair during the cross-examination process when they're just not answering the question.
1: There's also a fairness component. You know, these are times, you know, they're not, neither side's getting a lot of time. So, you know, you can't let the expert, chew, you know, chew up the, your time on cross by putting in what amounts to uh, their case. It reminds me of the scene in uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High where Mr. Hand says, you know, this is our time. And Spicoli says, well, there's what's wrong with a little pizza on our time?
2: The and- <laughs> Colleen
1: you know, so this is if it's cross examination, it's my time. You when know, you're direct or redirect, that's your time.
0: Um. <laughs> okay. So we just spoke about expert testimony um, and the key takeaways from there. Just witnesses overall, but let's continue on on that topic specifically for technical testimony from non-expert technical fact witnesses. Um, what were some of the key takeaways? Yeah.
1: So I sort of had a, a, a my reaction was, um, you know, number one, the court is going to be sensitive to a, a technical witness. Does it seem like the technical witness is giving expert testimony and? Or is it just testimony that's technical in, in nature and and so I think it's important to lay that foundation that you know you're going to talk about how the whatchamacallit call it connects to the thing of the jig you need to lay the foundation that this particular engineer knows how the whatchamacallit is call it is connected to the thing of the jig and lay that foundation and, and make sure that you have the time to do that uh, I think that from the perspective of me watching a trial, not as a, you know, a participant in a trial, but as, you know, something approaching a juror, trying to put myself in the mind of a juror, keeping that uh, expert testimony, keeping that technical testimony, you know, focused on the issues that matter, um, is, you know, and, and choosing a, a technical witness who's a good teacher, a, a likable person, th- those are really important things. Um, someone who, it just seems to be calling balls and strikes and looks like the kind of person you know that that is either hopefully a combination of of, of smart honest and likable um, so that was kind of those are my takeaways on the technical witnesses.
0: So we have given a laundry list of takeaways for the um, a trial, but there's more to come, right, because the, the plaintiffs had rebuttals. Mike, what were the key takeaways from the rebuttals?
1: Well, so I, mean, the, the, I think the rebuttal, one, that the, the patentee got a rebuttal, um, you know, so the patentee's going to have the last word. It got to reserve time from their closing uh, to make an argument after the defendant's closing, and it got to present a rebuttal case. Um, you know, so the, the patentee is going to reserve time, and the defendant, you know, the, the, the plaintiff will make its case in chief, and then uh, in this case, the, the defendant had dropped in validity, so there was, there wasn't a responsive case. It was just, but it went plaintiff, defendant, plaintiff, and it's the same thing for closing argument. Uh,
0: Danielle, what were the, your key takeaways regarding the verdict form?
2: The verdict form, uh, had more questions on it than I expected to see. Uh, and in just for example, it was not just a straight up infringement, no infringement. It was a had more step by step about the infringement. Uh, and then they had a breakout for direct infringement and then uh, infringement uh, under doctrine of equivalence. So that's not, uh, well, so I, I, from a defense perspective, was pleased to see that breakout.
0: Okay, we're back on.
1: To do a a wrap up.
0: Did you wanna do the personal takeaway? Yeah, yeah, that'll be the wrap up, I think.
1: You know, just ask us what our personal takeaways were. Okay.
0: so, um, Mike and Danielle, what were your personal takeaways from the first patent jury trial? So,
2: so for me, uh, it was a, a good reminder of taking the time to, to focus your case. Uh, we think that uh, we've, we're, we, we think that we're going to have a lot of time, but 16 hours. Uh, which was cut down once the invalidity defense was dropped, uh, is not a lot of time, uh, when you think of all of the other things that have to happen when you're presenting your testimony through through live witnesses. So just the, the, uh, um, focusing on narrowing being true to trying to to get at the simplest uh, aspects of your case and the simplest presentation and uh, being very deliberate with that uh, is is what I was reminded of, just having the opportunity to to watch someone else go through it.
1: So for me, you know, I would say I'd I'd take away from both the plaintiffs and defense side, and I think we've covered sort of the, the takeaways from litigating in this particular courtroom, I would just say litigating a case in general, watching a case as, as I did. Um, you know, from the plaintiff's side, I think that the, the big challenge with this patent was it just didn't look like, you know, if you looked at the figures, you looked at what it was called, the mobile set-top box, and it had 11 limitations. It didn't really look like a television. So you, you know, you have this patent to a mobile set-top box, and then, you're saying a television and uh, and a Roku players are mobile set-top boxes, and I think you know, there's just a, um, an, a, you know, maybe a subliminal or a gut-wrench reaction someone's going to have to, to you know, this, how do you, as a plaintiff, make what you're accusing seem like what you invented, you know, at, at a subliminal level, like you invented, you know this guy's selling my invention, you know, not at a technical element-by-element level, but at a, you know, sort of a gut-wrench level, like using, you know, the words of the patent. And um, I think that that's one takeaway from a plaintiff's side. And the next takeaway I had really is that I felt like if – If I I was to speculate why the jury did what it did, I think that the answer would be that they thought that the Roku's expert was a more effective communicator and teacher than plaintiff's expert. Plaintiff's expert, I suspect what they would say, and my reaction was, is he seemed intelligent, he seemed thorough, and if I hadn't seen a lot of sort of technical smoke screens and jargon smoke screens, experts over the years, I would have thought that, you know, he was technical and thorough and, you know, really did his job, but it was confusing, you know, it was, it it didn't make me really understand. I just thought, well, this guy did did a thorough analysis. On the other hand, Roku's expert, I feel like, did an effective job of communicating how the device worked and why it was different than the limitations. And, uh, you know, maybe his job was easier, maybe it wasn't, but I think if the jury was asked, that's probably what they would say. I think from a defendant's standpoint, it's so hard to do as a lawyer, but you have to choose a small number of elements and present them in a way that really makes the jury feel that you have helped them really understand, uh, how this works and giving them the backup for it. So, you know, tell them in a way they can understand and then give them the backup, give them a demonstrative that shows them and then give them the documents that, you know, whether they understand the documents or not, at least they see that you have the backup. And I think part of this is just respect for the jury. It is really hard. I think any lawyer would benefit from, you know, going through and sitting through a trial of any nature and watching how hard the jury has to work and, uh, you know, the lawyers have to work So hard to get, you know, to be fair to the jury and give them all the tools that they have to find for your client. So those were my takeaways both from this courtroom and in any courtroom.
0: Thank you, Mike and Danielle. These were extremely beneficial tips and key takeaways. For the listeners, please tune in next week. We have a very spooky segment um, that will touch on how this election will affect patent litigation cases. So until next time, bye.